Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 29, 2018. Coming up, we'll be on the phone live with New York Times bestselling author Micra Pollan. Pollan is best known for writing about food, but his new book is How to Change Your Mind. It's about LSD and magic mushrooms. It's about why scientists are giving these psychedelics a serious look as ways to help people overcome addiction, depression, and more. That's Michael Pollan. He'll be on live soon here on How on Earth. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth. Micah Pollan is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, and for the past 25 years, most of them have been mostly about food. Think of books such as The Botany of Desire and The Omnivore's Dilemma. Pollan's blend of science, history, and first-person reporting has inspired millions of of readers to look at what's on their dinner plate with a whole new perspective. Pollan's new book is about imbibing something other than food. Its title is How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Pollan will give book talks on these topics for the tattered cover this Thursday. And because crowds are expected to be large, he'll speak Thursday at an off-site location, Denver's Trinity Methodist Church. On Friday, Pollan will speak on behalf of the Boulder Bookstore at another extra-large venue, Boulder's First Congregational Church. Right now, Micah Pollan is on the phone with us live. Micah Pollan, you know, this is a book is a bit of a departure for you from some of the topics you've spoken about before. And besides, you're talking about some things that are illegal. Yeah, there is that. Um, uh, although the, the, the drugs are being used in, you know, clinical trials that are perfectly legal with government permission at places like uh, uh, Johns Hopkins and NYU. Um, but yes, there's also uh, legal activity that I describe in the book because uh, at some point I realized I couldn't really r- do justice to the subject without uh, having um, some experiences with these drugs, and uh, and I sought that underground since I couldn't get into the trials. Um, but yeah, the book is. I'm mean, going to go back to your first question. It is a departure in some ways. Um, I've been writing about food, but my larger interest as a writer, and the reason I got into food in the first place, is I'm fundamentally interested in our relationship with the natural world, uh, the way nature changes us, and we change nature. And so I've looked at food as one of the key um, engagements that humanity has with the natural world. We change nature more through our eating than almost anything we do. Yes, you're talking now about LSD and magic mushrooms as psychedelics that change our outlooks. That's right, and they and and they come from nature. Um, I mean, LSD is a synthetic drug, although it's derived from a fungus, the ergot fungus. Um, psilocybin is uh, comes from a mushroom that's very common and grows, you know, all over the North America and South America. And um, uh, and you know, humans have been using plants and fungi to change consciousness for thousands and thousands of years. And I've always been interested in that phenomenon. Like, where does that desire come from? What does it do for us? And what does it do for the mushroom? Um, and so, so in that sense, uh, there's some continuity in the work. And the other continuity is my, you know, my prevailing interest in the last few books has been about health. Um, you know, we have a diet that makes us very ill, and how might our diet um, help us deal with chronic disease and eliminate them? 
Um, in the same sense, these, these psychedelics are now being used for health. Uh, they're being used in a therapeutic way to help people deal with anxiety and depression and addiction and the fear of death. Um, so, you know, I've always been interested in how we can be healthier. And as it turns out, several of these uh, drugs that many people think of as possibly making you crazy can actually make you more sane. Well, Michael Pollan, in your book, you burst through a number of misconceptions, including the fact that psychedelics are not really addictive in the way that we think of addictive drugs or alcohol. No, they're not drugs of abuse in the traditional sense. Um, people do not form uh, habits. The, the, I think the experiences are just simply too intense. And your first thought after a big psychedelic experience is not, where can I get some more? Uh, it's like, do I ever have to do this again? And, um, and you know, in the classic uh, studies of, of uh, rodents where they give them uh, an option of administering more drugs to themselves with a lever or eating food, and they, you know, with the, if the lever is delivering cocaine, they'll keep pressing it until they die. Uh, if you put LSD in that setup, uh, they'll only do it once. They will never do it again. Um, so... Um, the drugs are not addictive, um, and they're also physiologically not very toxic. Um, it's very hard to find a lethal dose of a classic psychedelic like LSD or, or psilocybin, whereas there's, you know, many of the drugs in your medicine cabinet, uh, over-the-counter drugs have a lethal dose. Um, so they're not um, that hard on the body, but they can be hard on the mind. And people do get into psychological trouble. They have bad trips um, that can be, uh, you know, some of the most terrifying experiences of your life if you're not um, if you're not with someone who can guide you or help you get through it. Well, Michael Paul, um, you talk about that a great deal in your book. That there's a difference when you talk about the science of psychedelics. It's not the same as what we normally think of as science where you take a pill or you do an experiment in a clean room with a bright fluorescent light and lab coats and all of the rest, that there's something called set and setting that the shamans seem to have known about forever when they were working yeah. with these. But we are, it's, it's, it's something that we're not as comfortable saying is scientific to put the right setting and protocols in to help somebody have, well, let's call it a good trip. Yeah, well, you know, look, our, the, the power of reductive science, um, which is, you know, the prevailing mode of doing science in the West, is that you reduce everything to, to a single variable, the drug, say, and then you try to study what the drug does. And, um, um, and, that, and that usually means eliminating all other factors, such as uh, the presence of a therapist, um, a, uh, any kind of expectations, um, music, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. But in fact, that's not a very good way to study psychedelics because they are unusually uh, subject to the influence of set and setting. Set is uh, basically your mindset, your expectations going into the experience, and setting is your physical environment, and that has a profound effect. So to use these drugs in a way that's therapeutic, they've discovered that it must be in a guided um, situation. And, and you're right to stress the difference between that and what people probably think of when they think about people using psychedelics, which is taking a handful of mushrooms and going to a concert or, you know, getting an injection and sitting in a hospital room. Um, rather, you are, there, there is at least one guide and often two. They are trained therapists. 
They prepare you for the experience in advance in, in a couple of sessions often, uh, telling you what to do if you get into trouble, if you, if you encounter anything frightening, uh, you should surrender to it. You shouldn't fight it. Uh, if you feel yourself dissolving, go with it. If you think you're going crazy, if you think you're dying, just go with it. Uh, surrender is very important to, to not having a bad trip. Part of the study of this is to figure out what kind of protocols in a scientific mindset yes, might help to improve the experience for things like, well, you list many of them in your book where the therapy seems to be potentially very powerful, such as um, helping somebody overcome alcoholism. That's one that you talk about quite a bit. And another one is overcoming depression. Yep. And, and the drugs have proven effective in a guided situation where someone is with you the whole time, prepares you carefully, and then helps you integrate what you experienced and make sense of it and apply it to your life. Just, just and how, I've talked, but but how, yeah. how, how effective is it? You gave some statistics about people who've gone through these programs and clinical studies. How, what percentage of people get past alcoholism well, the, for some time period with this, for instance? Well, alcoholism, it, we found that it reduced dependence on alcohol. These are, I mean, these are studies that were done in the 50s and 60s, that it reduced alcohol dependence um, for a, a sustained period of time, for up to six months. Uh, there is more recent study of smoking cessation. And this was a, a very small pilot study, and everybody knew they were getting psilocybin. Um, but, that's uh, the mushroom, 60s, right? That's the magic that's mushroom. The, yeah, that's right. That's the, the chemical in the magic mushroom. 67% of the people who participated in the study to quit smoking were uh, still abstinent a year later. Now, that is dramatically better than the best treatment we now have. So, so that's better uh, than a nicotine patch? Yes, by far. Only about 20% of people managed to go a year on, on the other treatments we have. Um, in the case of people who were, uh, had cancer diagnoses and were struggling with depression and anxiety, 80% of those in a, in a trial at uh, Johns Hopkins had uh, statistically significant reductions in standard measures of depression and anxiety lasting at least six months. So that's a dramatic uh, effect. That's much better than we can do on things like SSRI antidepressants. Um, and it was a, a really striking um, treatment uh, size effect. And as a result, um, it looks like the FDA is going to approve a much larger study using psilocybin to treat depression in the general population, uh, which is very exciting because we don't have a lot of tools. And the, and the, you know, the Prozac and Paxil and that class of drugs, their effectiveness wears off after a while. And, and their effectiveness was never that great. It only was a few points better than a placebo. Also, people don't like being on those drugs. They have side effects, and they're hard to get off of. And you compare that, if this treatment does pan out, with a treatment you just do once. Um, you don't take psychedelics regularly. You have, you have this big experience, and uh, when it works, it kind of resets your brain. There's that other thing that we might want to keep bringing up, which is that it's not just take this drug home with you and take no. this pill. It's, it's take this with a huge amount of support. Yes, and the support can be a few hours, a few days before extensively. It can be follow-up to kind of process what your experience has been. It's not where it, it's, it's fairly intensive on the clinical side of working with a person. 
Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up, Shelley. I mean, basically, this is not simply drug therapy. This isn't psychopharmacology. This is psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So it, it works as a package. Um, and and what, you're, what, what is the active agent in, in driving this change in people is the experience they're having, not just the chemical. Um, and the experience is um, what is sometimes called a mystical experience. Um, it is an experience of achieving a new perspective on life and reality um, that puts everything in a new light. And um, it also involves the experience of your ego dissolving. You lose your sense of self and find yourself reconnecting with other, uh, other things around you, whether it's people. And some people experience this incredible um, uh, tidal wave of love. Uh, or it's, it's connecting to your idea of the divine or to the universe. And that reconnection appears to be the, um, the really important therapeutic agent. Because if you think about it, addiction, depression, obsession, these are very isolating uh, illnesses. They, they, you know, they, they trap us in our own minds and we, we ruminate and all we can think about is ourself or, the, or our next drink or next cigarette. And so to reconnect with something larger than ourselves and diminish that sense of ego uh, turns out to be very therapeutic. And you think that this has been happening among humans since before they were officially humans? Well, we don't know how far back it goes. I mean, there is some evidence that primates, you know, ingest psilocybin. We don't know why or what kind of experience they're having. Dogs seem to like psilocybin also. Um, but um, people, human cultures have been using psychedelics for thousands of years, uh, sometimes for healing, sometimes as part of religious rituals. There were, there were psilocybin cults in um, Central America and Mexico when the Spanish got here. And they were actually, the Spanish were really um, terrified of the whole idea and, and that it was paganistic and they crushed the mushroom cults um because they, they it was uh, the mushrooms yes well there were there were these mushroom stones that were part of the um the worship and they destroyed those and they forced the whole worship of mushrooms underground and the reason was that this was a sacrament that the indigenous peoples were using they called it flesh of the gods um which is exactly what the catholic sacrament is too right the bread and blood of christ but in some ways, this, the, the, the indigenous sacrament was superior because you actually could experience God directly on that um, sacrament. And whereas in the Catholic Church, you needed faith to, to imagine that that was the, the body and blood of Christ. So um, it was very threatening to the Church, and so the, the Church suppressed this, uh, mushroom, uh, these mushroom cults, and they went underground for 500 years. Well, Michael Pollan, you talk about that in the United States, too, that there was real research happening on the therapeutic and potential benefits of these psychedelic compounds in the 50s and in the early 60s, and then... Uh, what was it? Do you blame more Timothy Leary or do you blame the Vietnam well, War or what do you blame? 
You know, Timothy Leary um, is an important figure in this history, but I think he gets a little too much credit and a little too much blame. Um, when the drugs, he was a, a psychology professor at Harvard who was studying psilocybin, and he got so exuberant about the potential of both psilocybin and LSD to change society that he went from an interest in treating individuals to treating the whole society uh, and, and basically saying everybody should take these drugs, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out. Uh, and this was very threatening to the, um, to the powers that be. I mean, he was saying things like, kids who take LSD won't fight your wars or join your corporations. And it was true. Um, so there was a backlash. And what had been a very uh, lively, fertile period of research through the 50s and into the 60s gradually comes to a halt. Uh, and that is because, um, first, the drugs are made illegal, uh, beginning in the late 60s, but completely in 1970. Um, and it becomes very controversial to study them. And um, But one of the big surprises to me is that this 60s image of psychedelics that is in you know just imprinted on our minds um, is is just so such a limited uh, um, case of what really was going on there was a lot of very good research going on in the 50s and a lot of excitement that this was a psychiatric wonder drug uh, LSD and psilocybin and that it was an unprecedented situation where you had a promising line of scientific inquiry that was stopped. Uh, that, that hardly ever happens. And we had a 30-year hiatus, and it's only been in the last 15, 20 years that the research has resumed. It's been an interesting 30 years because it's been dominated by the other kind of drug therapy, which is take these drugs, take them home, use them forever. Every day. And every now and then come back and check in with us. But you've got to take these drugs the rest of your life and forget about the therapy, forget about the context. It's what a contrast between two different systems. Well, you know, what's interesting about psychedelic therapy is, um, as as some psychiatrists will tell you, um, psychotherapy went from being brainless, and it was all talk therapy and psychoanalysis till the, you know, really the the 80s. And then when we discovered these antidepressants, it, it became mindless, and all it was about was drugging the brain. And, you know, the brain and the mind are closely linked, and you can't treat them separately. Um, I think that's really what we've learned over the last several decades. And psychedelic therapy represents a totally different model or paradigm where you you address both the mind and the brain. This is a chemical that, that, that affects the brain, but it does it by creating an experience in the mind. And that experience is... Um, is what can be very therapeutic. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. It's important to know. And we're not done studying it. We still have to complete the FDA drug approval process. We have some very promising data, um, but there still are larger trials with um, larger populations that need to happen. And they will happen. It looks like the money has been raised. The FDA is supportive. And within the next year or so, we should have... Um, uh, a whole other series of trials going on all around the country, and I believe in Boulder, too, um, where um, and the sites have not been officially selected, um, but where people will be testing psilocybin for depression. Uh, there's a big trial of psilocybin for alcoholism, 
going on in New York right now. And there's a larger trial for smoking cessation going on in Baltimore. And you talk a lot also in your book about the group MAPS, which has been running trials in Boulder and other places nationwide about MDMA for treating trauma. MAPS is an interesting group that is looking into a lot of these things. Yeah, well, MAPS has been really one of the leaders. And help me understand, what does that stand for? Multi... Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Thank you. Um, it's a Thank very unwieldy name. It was started by a man named Rick Doblin in 1986, I think it was, who, whose dream was to become a psychedelic therapist. But then MDMA, which is uh, also known as ecstasy or Molly, was made illegal in 1985. And uh, before that, it had been used uh, in therapy and in a different way than psilocybin. Um, Basically, um, therapists would give people MDMA and then uh, have a therapy session. And what they found was that on MDMA, people established a very uh, strong bond of trust with the therapist. And they also were able to to, um, discuss traumatic events in their lives. That's why it's been so useful in PTSD. Correct. It's very successful compared to other treatments for treatment-resistant PTSD, just as the psychedelics are seeming to be pretty successful with the right set and setting for treating addiction and depression uh, and and also boosting creativity, so a lot of different things. Now, in your case, you said you have mentioned also in your book that there are such things as bad trips, and part of it can come from some of the warnings that come with psychedelic drugs, at least, that were in the headlines. Uh, One of my favorite headlines that you mentioned is the headline that said that uh, people on a psychedelic trip became blind by staring at the sun, and that never happened until after people read the headline. Exactly. So there were a lot of scare stories about psychedelics told in the mid-60s. And not coincidentally, that's when you started hearing about a lot more emergency room admissions for bad trips, uh, which were often panic attacks, and that they subsided after a while. But there was a lot of propaganda. And the, and the story you cite, uh, the idea that these kids would stare at the sun till they went blind, um, this was a story that was actually made up by a commissioner of the blind in the state of Washington who had heard about LSD and was really worried about college kids using it. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll tell this story, and that'll discourage them. The only problem was he completely made it up out of whole cloth. But it got around, and it became this urban legend. And, uh, you know, at various points did inspire people to stare at the sun. I don't know if they went blind, but they did damage their retinas. Um, the drugs are incredibly suggestible in their effect. In that case, if somebody says before a trip, don't stick beans up your nose, that would be a bad idea. Yeah, it would be a bad idea. That's why guides are very important. They, they, they prepare you with the right expectations and not the wrong expectations. Um, but but it's, make no mistake, bad trips are real. They can happen. They often happen when people are in a, a, you know, using the drugs carelessly without a guide um, and uh, just in, under bad circumstances, or they go into it already feeling bad, and it intensifies their feelings. The, the, the molecule doesn't add anything to your brain. It, it, it's a trigger, and it, it's an amplifier of mental processes that are already there. And if those mental processes are negative, they can get amplified too. Um, so that, that all of which is just to say that um, set and setting are very important, and as is the role of a guide. People have perfectly 
great trips without gods, it is true. Even though you say set and setting are very important, after you'd studied this enough, you had this lovely description of a hydrangea leaf that happened when you were at home and you took a magic mushroom. Yeah, well, I did a a trip in a kind of a perfect setting in in my garden uh, in a house where I used to live in Connecticut. And... um, uh, several years ago, and I had this uh, amazing reconnection with the plants in my garden. And, uh, you know, I've always thought that we don't give plants enough credit for being conscious, uh, not in the way we're conscious, but in the way appropriate to them of being aware of their environment, of being actors in nature and not just passive recipients of our attentions. Um, and I felt that in a way I'd never felt it during the psilocybin trip, that all the plants in the, my garden were in some sense regarding me. And they were very benign, they were very friendly, but I had this sense that I wasn't the only perceiving subject in the garden, that the plants were perceiving subjects too. And of course they are that. We know that scientifically, uh, but we seldom see it or feel it in a way that I did on this, uh, on this experience. And the way that you felt that is one of the most lasting images to me in your book. It's inspired me to look at leaves much more as a special, wonderful thing as I'm driving around or walking around. Although, let's face it, in terms of science, that's what you call squishy science. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, there's a whole science of uh, plant communication and, and plant intelligence uh, that I actually just wrote about for the uh, New Yorker a couple of years ago. And, um, yeah, to think that the plants are thinking is squishy, very squishy. Um, but, to, but to realize that they uh, are receiving information from their environment, that they're communicating with one another using chemicals, conveying warnings about threats, um, that trees are actually connected by a, a, a network of fungi that are uh, carrying signals from one tree to another in a forest and actually conveying nutrients. All this is true, and it's as wondrous as anything I experienced on psychedelics. Well, here's hoping that the wondrousness that might be potential in psychedelics does make a good matchup with science in a way that helps a lot of people have better lives. And thank you for writing your book, and you'll be in Denver and Boulder very soon, at the end of this week, I believe. Yes, I'm looking forward to being there and, uh, and meeting readers, and I, I hope people will come to both events. Well, thank you again. We've got to sign off now, but we appreciate what you've been talking about and your new book. Say the title and the full title for us. The full title is How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And I did that without reading it. (laughs) Wow, I'm impressed. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Shelley. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.